Uh, you can navigate over to Isaiah chapter 12, or 14, excuse me. Type the word cherub in an image search engine, and you'll get a bunch of cutesy baby angels with wings sitting on clouds. The plural for cherub is cherubim. The cherubim in the Bible are a far cry from that imagery. They're the highest order of angelic beings possessing incredible beauty and great power. In fact, cherubim are never called angels, although we believe they belong to that class of creation. For example, Satan is a cherub, but then in the New Testament it is said of him that he masquerades as an angel of light. He can appear as an elect angel even though he has fallen, so we conclude that he is a cherub and that cherubim are angels. Scholars say they are not called angels because they are never messengers, which is the meaning of the word angel, but rather proclaimers and protectors of the glory of God. Thus you find them posted in the Garden of Eden and in the inner room of the tabernacle and later the temple. The first biblical reference are the cherubim of Genesis 3.24 who were placed at the gate of the Garden of Eden after man was expelled. They were stationed with flaming swords to protect the way to the tree of life, lest sinful man should intrude into God's presence or presume to take of the tree of life. They next appear in the form of golden images on the mercy seat, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament worship tent, and in Solomon's temple. The Ark and the mercy seat with its symbolic cherubim were kept in the innermost sanctuary of the tabernacle where God's Shekinah glory manifested itself. And so they are proclaimers, protectors of the glory of God. Now, in our last study, we were in Ezekiel 28, and we saw that Satan was a cherub, maybe the chief among the cherubim. This is further confirmed by the other Old Testament passage, evangelical site as describing him, Isaiah chapter 14, and especially verses 12 through 17. So let me read those, and then we'll comment on them. Isaiah 14, 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? Now, the verses that precede these end probably verses 16 and 17, address the king of Babylon and his golden city. But suddenly in verse 12, they seem to be describing someone very supernatural. And so there are at least three ways to approach this text if you, if you um, study it. Uh, one, you can see it as a description of an earthly king, the king of Babylon, and make some of these descriptions fit that. You can see it, secondly, as a description of Lucifer, the cherub we now know as the devil or Satan, or you can see it as a description with a dual meaning of both an earthly king and the person uh, and power behind that king. Now, the very fact that when you read this text, it sometimes seems like you're reading about an earthly king, and then it seems it's about someone supernatural, tells you that it has a dual meaning. You don't need to be a scholar to understand God's intent. Charles Ryrie, who is a scholar, writes that this is, and I quote, evidently a reference to Satan because of Christ's similar description of him and because of the inappropriateness of the expressions of Isaiah 14, 13, and 14 
on the lips of anyone but Satan. And so we're looking at these uh, Old Testament descriptions of both a literal king and also the power behind that particular king, in this case, Satan. Now, in Ezekiel 28, we saw that Satan was lifted up with pride. This passage in Isaiah is kind of like a commentary on the devil's pride. It dissects it, showing you its various parts. Fallen from heaven means the loss of his original position, leading eventually to his being confined to the lake of fire. I mentioned last time, Satan still has access to heaven. Uh, you get that from the book of Job. It's clear that he's called to heaven from time to time to present himself before the Lord. Uh, he's the prince of the power of the air, the New Testament says, so I guess his actual headquarters would be the atmosphere above the earth or maybe the stellar heavens. During the Great Tribulation, we read that he is cast down from uh, there to the earth and he is confined to the earth. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, he'll be chained and cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Uh, Satan is let out of the pit after the thousand years, and he leads a rebellion of human beings against the Lord. Uh, always fascinates me that even in the millennial earth, with perfect uh, conditions, with a redeemed, not a totally restored, but a redeemed, uh, not a redeemed, uh, restored earth, not a redeemed earth, because he hasn't recreated it yet, streams in the desert, lions and lambs playing together on Facebook, you know, those kinds of things, <clears throat> uh, people still will reject Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they will be led in a final rebellion by the devil, uh, which will easily be put down. And then at the end of Jesus' millennial kingdom, uh, the devil is cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And so I like to think of him as falling throughout his career until finally uh, we're through with him. Now, here we learn the devil's name, Lucifer. Now, the Hebrew word is halel, and it means light bearer, shining one, or morning star. It's the word you'd use for the planet Venus. Many modern translations translate this as star of the morning or morning star. In this passage, halel refers to the king of Babylon and to Satan figuratively. Now, of course, Jesus lays claim to this title in Revelation 22:16. He's called the morning star. And though the passage in Revelation is in Greek, while the passage in Isaiah is Hebrew, both are translated similarly. This is the only place in all the Bible where Satan is called Lucifer. Notice it is used to describe him at the time of his fall into sin. It may not be his original name. It may not be a name at all. It may describe his aspirations as the devil to climb to the zenith of the heavens before the rising sun. In other words, it describes his desire to be the day star and to rise ahead of the sun to be first. And so, I don't want to argue with anybody, it's not worth it, but uh, we commonly say that, that Lucifer was the original angelic name of this person now we know as Satan and the devil, but it's more likely that Lucifer is a description of what he is doing in this passage, seeking to rise above God, and, and it is a Lucifer. And so, you want to call the devil Lucifer, that's fine, we all understand that, but uh, it's probably a designation rather than his original name. It says, for you have said in your heart, and that's Isaiah's way of saying what Ezekiel alluded to when he said, 
iniquity was found in you. So when Ezekiel described the devil's fall, he said uh, he was perfect in all his ways until iniquity was found in him. Isaiah says, uh, you have said in your heart. Since God created Lucifer perfect and cannot be the author or creator of evil, we would understand this to be a mystery of free will. Apparently, if you want beings that have genuine freedom to choose, they may choose badly. And uh, it's clear that the devil did. He led a third of the angels in rebellion with him. It's clear that Adam and Eve did. <clears throat> the Bible everywhere assumes that both angelic beings and human beings were created with genuine freedom to choose to obey or to disobey God, and that if they disobeyed God, it was not His fault, nor was He the cause of it. Now, when you're in the midst of a tragedy and you are asking why of God, it seems hollow to simply say free will. I, and I wouldn't recommend you do this the next time somebody's really suffering and they, they're just crying out. You know, sometimes people, Christians, they say, you know, why would God allow this? And they're not really asking you to answer the question. Do you understand some questions aren't asked for answers? Uh, and I know you want to answer these questions. I want to answer these questions, but just care for people. Just love people. Just, you know, do whatever you can. You, people really aren't looking for theology, usually right in the midst of the tragedy. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but uh, it seems hollow to just begin to talk to people about free will. But it's true. That is the basis. God created beings with free will, risking the evil that the devil's bad choosing and Adam and Eve's free choosing brought into his perfect creation. He immediately went to work to redeem creation and set things right. He's been at it for over 6,000 years of human history. It doesn't do any good to say this necessarily, but you know Peter's comment about the Lord. He says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so what seems an, in, an, an unendurable amount of time to us when we are going through personal suffering or the thousands of years that the human race has been suffering uh, is really a short period of time uh, to God and concerning eternity. But assuming that God is smart, which I think we can do, and that He would choose the quickest path to redeeming His creation, I think we live in the best possible universe that will accomplish God's will without violating our free will. And, and uh, now, some people think all this talk about free will is too man-centered, uh, that we're putting too much emphasis on our choices. But the alternative is saying that everything, including every evil, is God's will and that He is, therefore, in fact, the creator and the author of evil. And uh, there are those who say that, many say that, uh, from many theological traditions. And when you ask them, when you are, you know, uh, incredulous at that because it seems impossible, they say, well, it's a mystery of God's sovereignty and that we can't solve. I would rather say it's a mystery of God's uh, allowing us to have free will. It doesn't make it man-centered because God is overall, God remains sovereign. Um, God sovereignly chose to give man free will to choose, give angels free will to choose. The universe we live in is the result of those choices, and God is at work to redeem it. In fact, He has redeemed it through Jesus Christ, and we know where we're headed to the creation of a new earth and a new heaven, wherein dwells what? Righteousness and only righteousness. And so we're in that process, and this is what uh, it takes to get there. 
Now, while we're talking about uh, the history of our race, I should mention something you might encounter, you might not, uh, but there is a teaching made popular way back in the 1980s. He didn't invent it, but he made it popular. Hal Lindsey, that mankind was created to teach Satan and his angelic followers a lesson. As I originally heard this, the lesson was about his grace to forgive sin. Hal Lindsey used to say that after God condemned Satan and the angels who followed him in rebellion, that the devil accused God of being unfair. So God created man, saw him fall, then showered his grace and mercy upon him, sending his son to redeem them by his blood. Uh, now, that may or may not be true, but it's merely conjecture on the part of those who teach that. And so I avoid teaching it since we can't be certain whether Satan fell before or after God created Adam and Eve. I mean, that's, a, that's just a fact. We just don't know. He certainly sinned before Genesis 3, but there's nothing in the Bible to tell us with certainty exactly when before Genesis 3. Now, back into our text, there's five I will statements in Isaiah 14. These statements are probably flashbacks to his original intentions in his original situation just before his fall. This is what Satan said in his heart in rebellion against God. This is like God spiritually dissecting the, the, Satan's heart and showing us what was in there uh, that uh, accomplished his fall. He says, I will ascend to heaven. Now, since Satan had access to the very presence of God as the leading cherub, this means not that he wanted to be in heaven, because he already was, it means he desired to occupy the place of God probably desiring equal recognition with God. And so he wanted to be equal with God. It says, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. The stars are references to angels. They are so-called in other passages of Scripture. Satan already was the greatest angelic being, and it may be that all angels took orders from him as a chief administrator under God. Angels would recognize that orders came uh, through him, rather, came directly from God. But it seems he wanted to rule all the angels directly rather than subordinately. So he wanted to be equal with God. He wanted to be the ruler of the angels uh, without God's uh, oversight. It says, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly. According to Isaiah 2 and Psalm 48, the Mount of Assembly is the center of God's kingdom rule wherever that is. Later in the Bible, it will become associated with the Messiah's earthly rule of the millennial kingdom from Jerusalem. Uh, and so we would extrapolate from that that Satan uh, desires to rule over all the affairs of creation, including uh, human beings. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Stars refer to angels, mount to a place of rule. Now clouds are associated with the glory of God. Lucifer had in him a great glory that reflected his creator, but he desired a glory equal to or above God's glory. And he says, I will make myself like the Most High. This is meaning that he would usurp God's authority rather than be submissive to it, for no one can be like God and still let God be God, for there is none like him. Satan's rebellion left him a murderer and a liar. If you want to jump ahead to John 8, 44, I'm pretty sure it's up on the screen. This is Jesus speaking. He says, you are of your father, the devil, talking to the religious leaders. He says, the desires of your father you want to do. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. The you of John 8:44, the religious leaders, uh, they were arguing that their descent from Abraham was proof of their salvation. They said, we have as our father Abraham, uh, so we're Jews. It's not uncommon for different religious groups to, to teach either openly or covertly that if you're a member of that group, you're in. I know uh, growing up in, the, in at least the tradition of Roman Catholicism, and we weren't heavily Roman Catholic. You know, my parents, as I've shared before, they, made, they baptized me and, uh, you know, confirmation, confession, communion, and uh, those kinds of things, uh, confirmation. Uh, but then after that, you were kind of on your own. And the teaching was, the understanding was, uh, you were born Catholic, and, and especially Catholic because you're Italian, so, I mean, you're in. I mean, you're, you're going to heaven when you die. Or purgatory for, in a really special section, you know, uh, because you're, you're so, you know, Catholic. And so uh, a lot of religions teach this, and the Jews believed that they were saved, they were God's elect by virtue of their physical descent from Abraham. And, of course, uh, we know that there has to be a spiritual descent from Abraham uh, in order to be saved. And so Jesus pointed out that in their rejection of him, they were imitating the devil, and thus they were more like his descendants than the true spiritual descendants of Abraham. They would, in fact, plot the murder of Jesus, telling lies to convict him in their tribunal as well as before Pilate. And so the Lord said, you're, you're going to be murderers and liars, and that is just like your father, spiritually speaking, the devil. Satan is, if you think about it, he's behind the spiritual death of angels and of mankind in Eden. The angels who fell with him, Adam and Eve and the human race, all of us personally responsible, but Satan is really the initiator of this problem. Had he not been lifted up in pride, one-third of the created angels would not be headed for the lake of fire for eternity. When Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning, he was probably referring to all that happened in Genesis 3 and 4, including the murder of Abel. Now, Jesus describes the devil as a liar four different ways in that one verse. He invented lying, and he does all he can to propagate it. If we want the song of our life to be, I did it my way, then we can expect a lot of deception and death, spiritually speaking. Uh, you know, there's no comparison of us to the devil in one sense, but uh, anytime there's pride, anytime we have this same I problem, as it's called, where we put our will against God's will and want to do things our way, uh, or quite simply put, uh, to understand it, when we disobey the Word of God in some small or large way, we risk murdering something or someone. It may not be an actual murder, although it can be, and sometimes it is, but it will feel like one. Uh, we usually don't use this terminology, but people murder their marriages all the time. Uh, I mean, the, the things that people do that are outside the will of God for them uh, in terms of the marriage relationship, it's, it's like killing the marriage. It's, it's a murder that takes place. It, it hurts that bad. People murder their marriages by going outside the loving boundaries that God has set. Uh, we may in the process of murdering our way of life as we redefine marriage outside of the way the Bible presents it as the 
monogamous heterosexual union of one man and one woman for life. We could, be, we could be in the process of destroying our society, of killing our society, of murdering it. It's that serious. We, we usually don't use the word because it, it doesn't, doesn't seem to fit together, but sometimes I don't think people realize how heinous sin really is. Uh, and I always, I always like to use the example of marriage because people can understand that. And, and uh, you know, maybe not in your marriage, but you've seen it in other marriages, and you say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. It's as if somebody just, you know, took a knife to that thing and cut it up, and, and it died because they went outside of God's boundaries. But in, in essence, anytime we disobey God, small ways or big ways, we're calling God a liar, we're coming up with our own truth, because if God says, God says, hey, this is the way to go, and we say, yeah, well, we're going to go this way, well, now we've come up with our own truth, and that's what Jesus says about the devil. He had his own truth, uh, and we run the risk of killing something. Instead, let's hum, in my life, Lord, be glorified as we submit ourselves to the clear teaching of the Word of God. Amen?